This will actually be our last sermon in Luke for four weeks, because at the end of verse 50, there's a little bit of a transition. It says in verse 51, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and from there we see a little bit of a different theme. So we'll be taking a small break from Luke, and we'll spend four weeks looking at the book of Esther. So mix things up a little bit, enjoy Old Testament story or narrative, if you like fancy words, uh, on Esther. So this morning, though, we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. God's word says, On the next day, when they'd come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of sinners. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. And they are afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Trusting Christ begins with an initial trust in a moment in time, but this trust must be repeated throughout our life. Martin Luther, the great church reformer, who accurately and strongly stressed that we only come to God through faith, through Christ, by grace, also said the following. He wrote, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness, not health, but healing, not being, but becoming, not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Thus, the Christian life on earth is not one of arrival, but one of constant journey. You can master systematic theology. You can become an expert in biblical languages. You can, multi- you can memorize major chunks of scripture. However, knowing facts about God is not the same as knowing and trusting God, or even walking with God day by day. You know, just as with any relationship, There's constant growth and improvement. We interact with people in different seasons of life, and we see new and wonderful things about them. And realizing that we're never going to be perfect on earth actually guards us. It protects us from dangers. Many of you are probably aware of Paul Tripp. He was a former pastor and now a well-known conference speaker and writer. 
however, in one of his books, he writes about early on in his ministry when he suddenly became more and more self-righteous and became more and more thinking he had arrived. Now he would say, well, I never would have admitted that because he knew that was wrong. But as he grew more and more irritated at home and had anger towards his family, he later reflected that this is what happened. His wife, though, Luella, would often graciously talk to him about his anger, his irritableness. And one time as they were arguing again, he says, I got on a roll in responding to her and actually said these deeply humble words. 95% of the women in our church would love to be married to a man like me. Luella quickly informed me that she was in the 5%. <laughs> you know, as you look at the relationships around you, you might think, man, I sure deal with a bunch of idiots. All I have is the net morons. They make bad decisions. They form unthought-out plans, and they really just don't know about anything about anything. Really, what would make everything better is if people listened to me, did what I had to say, and followed my advice. Then everything would be better. And really, the only proper way for me to respond to these idiots is to be annoyed, angry, and constantly frustrated. If that's our thoughts, then I think we're maybe more like Paul Tripp. We've suddenly moved into thinking we've arrived, and everyone else around us, they're the problem. And yet, really... The proper diagnosis is that we are showing how far we are from arrival as we condescendingly look down and that we have much room for growth. You know, this is really spiritually dangerous ground to be on because Tripp later writes, this sucks the life out of our walk with God. Tender, heartfelt worship is hard for a person who thinks of himself as having arrived. No one celebrates the presence and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ more than the person who has embraced his desperate and daily need for him. We daily need to see we fall short. And the disciples this morning, we see them in four ways falling woefully short. And yet, it's not just the disciples. As I studied and reflected this on this this week, I saw a reflection of myself that I can be very much like they are. And so here we are reminded of four wonderful truths. First, in verses 37 through 43, what matters is God's power, not ours. Then in 43 to 45, that death leads to life. Then in verses 46 to 48, humility is greatness. And lastly, in the last two verses, that it's about following Jesus that matters, not us. It begins here in verse 37, because Jesus comes down the mountain. As he comes down, this man is there in the crowd with all the others. He's crying out, my only son, he's being destroyed by this evil spirit. Now it seems like there's some kind of combination of epilepsy, a physical disease, and spiritual control by a spirit of this young boy. We see that in the way he is controlled. But though this man has already come and talked to the nine disciples... They weren't able to cast it out. So the man comes to Jesus. And Jesus responds, Oh, this unfaithful generation that is often going astray. You know, their lack of faith is shown by their inability to heal this boy. If you read Mark 9, where the parallel account, we see that they asked Jesus, Well, why couldn't we cast this one out? Because you know, this is really interesting, because if you flip back to the beginning of Luke chapter 9, Jesus had given them power over unclean spirits and to heal diseases, and they had done this. So why are they not able to now? 
Well, Jesus tells them in Mark, it's because they needed to pray. This one could only come out by prayer. So it seems as though the disciples have misunderstood. As they were going out, healing, casting out demons, they began to think, we're pretty good at this. We got the power. We can do this. And they stopped praying. And they stopped focusing that it's not us who's doing this. It's God through us. It's his power that matters, not ours. So Jesus here calls this man to come to bring his boy to him. And when Jesus does, the boy is healed. And immediately everyone around is focused on the majesty of God. You know, they're, they're seeing Jesus' power, and he is great. Now it's really interesting, a quick side note, that there, we see here one of the many reasons we can trust the Bible. You know, a lot of people say, well, accounts like this, these aren't real. This was just made up later by the disciples because they wanted to argue that Jesus was the Son of God. Yet if they made these accounts up, why would they include such disparaging remarks about themselves? Why would they have Jesus call them basically a faithless and perverted generation? If they were trying to make something up so they would have power because Jesus was the Son of God, then they would have painted themselves much better. And yet we see the Bible's honesty in critiquing even themselves. Because they did later realize this is not about us, it's about him. But in this, I think it's also encouraging that you know, the disciples' lack of ministry prowess, or even ours, doesn't keep people from coming to Jesus. Though the disciples blundered, the man still had his son healed. You know, a friend of mine has recounted that he got to know a man who had been in the occult. And he came to see the darkness and danger of that. And so he came to a church asking them for help. And basically, he didn't just go to one church. He went to six different churches, and every single one of them basically said, that's too weird, that's too abnormal, why don't you just go somewhere else? Well, thankfully, he didn't stop with six, but he then went to a seventh church who helped him. And our blunders don't keep people from Jesus. Now, my point is not at all to say that we shouldn't be concerned about how we act or that what we do is unimportant. That's not my point. It's that God doesn't need us to be perfect for his will to be accomplished. And that's really good news because if I have to be a perfect parent for my children to trust Christ, well, then none of my children are going to trust Christ. If I have to be a perfect pastor or you have to be a perfect co-worker for anyone you interact with, to come to know the Lord or be encouraged, well, it's never going to happen. God works through broken vessels, even like us. And really, the point of this section is driving, whose power are you trusting? You know, if you struggle with anger, what's going to get control of it? If you struggle to get your children to obey, what's the power for change? Is a firm lecture, a more stringent or strong discipline going to do it? Or if you flip the other end, is it just another positive conversation? Where is the power to create change in our lives? Where do we find power? Is it from us or from Him? And the point, again, is not that we become passive, but we realize that we need God's help even to do what He calls us to do. The great teacher Augustine famously said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. But the disciples didn't just lose sight of Jesus' power. They also didn't realize that death, even suffering, leads to life. That's what we see in verses 43 to 45. 
Because while everyone's marveling about Jesus' greatness, Jesus turns to talk to the disciples. He was going to remind them of what just happened. He had just told them before he went up on the mountain that he would need to be betrayed. He would need to suffer. He would need to be killed and then rise again. And then he went up on the mountain and his glory was seen. And then he came down and healed this boy. But as he healed this boy, as the boy was made full physically, as he was made clean spiritually, and as he was restored to his father, Jesus knew, well, for this man to be restored, I'm going to have to be torn apart. And as all these crowds are clamoring, Jesus, you're so great, Jesus is wanting them to see past the veil or the smoke, smoke screen of people's approval. Because these same people who are clamoring for Jesus will be the same people chanting for his crucifixion. Because Jesus, he says, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. You know, delivered by Judas, but more than that, delivered by the Father out of love for these people. And so Jesus wants them to understand this. Don't lose sight. As you see all the crowds, everyone cheering us on, don't think that's going to bring victory. What it is is going to be my death, Jesus reminds them of. And yet, they have a hard time understanding this. Now, it's not that they don't understand Jesus' words. They could understand what he was saying. It's that they couldn't perceive it. How could God's Son, his Messiah, suffer and die? How has life come through death? And yet this story is again reminding us of Jesus' compassion. The disciples messed up again. They're losing sight of life coming through death. And yet what does Jesus do? He takes time to instruct them. He guides them patiently. And yet we can be like the disciples too. As we go through suffering, we can ask. I can ask. God, how can you use this suffering? Why are you allowing this? How in the world could this be part of your plan? Just as the disciples think, it doesn't make sense. We can look at our lives and go, God, what you're doing doesn't make sense. And yet Jesus continues to instruct us through his disciples. So Peter will say in 1 Peter 1 that testing and suffering refines us. 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God also uses suffering so that as we are comforted in the midst of it, we can then be a blessing to others. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7. through There it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, we read that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so thus, 
Though we, like the disciples, may wonder how betrayal, how suffering can lead to God's plan, we're reminded by Jesus' words at the cross that suffering leads to life. And so we see that God uses it to refine us. He uses it so that we might comfort others. Well, the disciples, though, quickly lose sight, not only on God's purpose in Jesus' suffering, but also they forget Jesus' greatness and instead focus on their own. And so thirdly, we see that Jesus shows them that humility is greatness. In verse 46, it says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. The contrast couldn't be greater. Verse 44, they were astonished at the majesty of God, the greatness of God. Everyone's astonished at that. But not the disciples. They're going, well, what about our greatness? Am I greater than him? Is he greater than me? Not only should that have been a note that they were focusing on the wrong thing, but Jesus again just reminded them that life comes through death. And yet they're missing all of this. While Jesus is telling them how he came to serve, they're saying, well, how can people serve us? Because we want to be great. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, comes and brings a child and puts the child next to him. Now this child definitely would have been younger than 12 and probably much younger than that. And no one in their culture would have thought that this child was great. You know, children under 12 were not taught the Torah, and generally they were considered a waste of time. One saying from that time talked about how a man could waste his life away, and it said, morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tearing in places where men of common people assemble destroy a man. This is important to note because in our culture, we dote on our children. We say they're in the honor roll. We think the children are great. Yet in their culture, no one would have seen this child as great. And so Jesus is bringing before them someone who is the least in their culture. And then Jesus says in verse 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now this saying is fascinating because Jesus is tying everything to him and his Father. And this is one of those places where we see that if Jesus is not the Son of God, what he says is extreme. It would be egotistical. It would be pompous. Because if Jesus is just a mere man, he would be destroying what he's just arguing for. Because he's saying, greatness is known in relation to me. But how could you be more pompous than to go, well, if you're great, well, then you know me. And yet Jesus is claiming to be more than just a mere man, more than just a teacher. He's claiming to be God's son. And so Jesus says, if they receive a child in his name, they receive him. Not because the child is great, but because he is. Now what does Jesus mean by receiving someone in his name? This theme comes up several times in scripture. You may be familiar with Matthew 25, on the day of judgment, where people will come before Jesus, and Jesus will say to the righteous, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous are going to reply, we never did that. Well, what are you talking about? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it one to the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. Well, this arises in the book of Acts. The Pharisee Saul is persecuting the church. And yet on the road to Damascus, when the voice comes from heaven, it doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? 
the voice says, why are you persecuting me? And so what's happening is Jesus is saying, how you treat people in my name is how you treat me. Thus again, Jesus is saying, he is the center by which everything else relates. So if we receive even the lowliest of people in our culture, whoever that may be, as though we're doing it under Christ, that we're receiving him. Not only that, we're receiving his father who sent him. Everything relates to God. And that's why humans are of more value than any animal. For God made us in his image. Thus, Jesus ends this section by saying, the least among you is great. Now, we love to have discussions about who's the greatest. And so these are just not first century issues. These are 21st century issues. My dad's stronger than your dad. My children are smarter than yours. And we don't always say these things. Maybe we think it internally. We walk back past the potluck and go, huh, all of my casserole's gone. There's only half eaten. Yep, that was pretty good. We look around, we go, ah, oh, everyone look how great I am. And we're constantly comparing how much prestige, how much power, how much honor we have with others. And the sad thing is, if we're arrogant, we boast about the skills we have, and then we look down on the ones we don't have and go, ah, oh, who cares about that? If we're the type of people who beat ourselves up, then we look at the skills we have and go, oh, that doesn't matter. Life is only important if I have those skills over there that I don't have. And as you know, this happens in all of life. It's with our siblings, with our co-workers, with others who are sadly doing this competition of who's greater, who's got more power, who's got more possessions. And yet Jesus is saying, stop with all the horizontal comparisons. Greatness is known vertically. Because how you relate to those in my name is whether you're great or not. And even the lowest is great in my name. You know, in the Revolutionary War, a stranger was riding his horse close to a battlefield. And he paused to observe a group of soldiers who were very tired. They were digging this trench. And the leader of that section, he was just on the top shouting orders, barking threats, punishments, if it wasn't completed within the hour. Well, the stranger rode up to the group and said, Why aren't you helping? The officer there looked at the stranger with a contemptuous look and said, I don't have to, because I'm in charge. These men do as I tell them. But if you feel so strongly about it, you're welcome to help them yourself. So the stranger got down, got in the ditch, and started digging. And they finished within the hour. And as they finished, the stranger congratulated all the men and then looked to the leader and he said, Next time your rank prevents you from supporting your own men, you should notify top command and I'll provide a more permanent solution. The soldier there in charge then noticed who was there and realized it was General George Washington. With shocked realization, he took in the full impact of the lesson. You know, George Washington was just living out Jesus' new category of what matters to God. It doesn't matter that he's in top command. Greatness is not having a position. It's how you serve and relate to those around you. And this is really a wonderful, freeing truth. You know, if greatness is only being a good athlete, then some of us are never going to be great. If greatness is having to be funny or attractive or intelligent, we can never achieve it. But by God's grace, any person can be humble. 
Greatness is available for every single person. Yet sadly, as a friend of mine once said, we often create ladders of success that lead to nowhere. We're climbing as hard as we can. And then when we get to the top, we realize there's nothing there. You know, what ladder to nowhere are you attempting to climb? Do you think if I can only be accepted by this group of people, well, if I can only get this promotion, if I can only get this rank, if I can only get invited to that party, then I'll be great. Or do you already think I'm great because I have the position, I have the power. Or maybe you don't have the power and you long for the day when you're in charge so you can tell everyone what to do because then life will be great. Well, Jesus says all of us can be great if we realize it's found in humility, found in Him. And so Jesus is challenging them. He's challenging us. Not just that, but lastly, we see challenging us and the disciples because we need to realize it's about following Jesus, not us. The disciples had many mess-ups, but it seems to me that John kind of comes up almost confidently. Well, I know we messed up with the whole demon casting out thing. And I know we kind of forgot about the cross and this humility thing, but Jesus, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name and we stopped him. We did it for you, Jesus. And you can just kind of see Jesus. Stop rebuking them. If they're doing it in my name, don't hinder them. You know, anyone who's not against me is for me. And we see a similar thing in Philippians where Paul says, Whether people are preaching the gospel out of pretense or in truth, well, as long as God is glorified, that's what matters. And Jesus, he was really critiquing them because notice why John thought this was wrong. Because this man is not following us. He doesn't say, well, this man isn't following you, Jesus. Actually, it tends to think that Jesus, he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. It's that he was not following us. As though the important thing is, us and not Jesus. And you also have to wonder, considering that the disciples had just failed to cast out a demon, is there maybe a slight hint of jealousy? What's going on? This man's casting. We need to keep the power here. Don't let them have any of this. We need to be the ones who can do this. And yet Jesus rebukes them and is saying, anyone who is not for me is against me. Now Jesus' words should seek us to compel unity with faithful Christians outside of our groups. Again, though, these are not just first century issues. Even in the 18th century, Matthew Henry writes, Apt are we to imagine that that those do not follow Christ at all, who do not follow him with us, and those do nothing well, who do not do just as we do. But the Lord knows who are his. We can be prone to think, we're the true followers. We got it all right. We have expositional preaching. We sing the right blend of songs. We do this. We have the right theology. We have this and this and this. However, Jesus is saying that faithful service to him is not reduced to just a mere theological viewpoint. Oh, the right dominant denomination. You know, in my life, I've had pleasure of working with various ministries. And I've worked with Baptists, Brethren, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and I could go on. Now, do I have sometimes concerns about some of the things they teach? Yes. But if they're focusing on the gospel and honoring Christ, I was very happy with many of them 
to serve, this is great. Sure, we don't agree on some secondary matters, but if we're focused on serving Christ, let's rejoice in what they're doing. That's why we even allowed a Presbyterian church plant to grow out of here. Because it's not about Baptist. It's not about Wichita Falls Baptist Church. It's about Christ being honored. And yet we're so prone to think, well, if you're not doing things the way we are, then you're not really right. And we could expand this in lots of things. Well, they don't school the way we do. They're not really serving God. Or they don't do their finances the way we do. They're a little luxurious on their vacations, aren't they? They should be doing it the way we do. And we bring everything back to us. And though people may do things differently and not within our group, we should give God praise anytime it's happening outside of our group and God's name is being praised. A.W. Tozer writes about this. He talks about how the focus here is not really so much unity, but unity for Christ's sake. And he gives this helpful analogy. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to each which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could be possibly were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. And that's the goal. Is this group, though maybe they don't agree with everything we say, seeking to honor Christ? Are they preaching the gospel faithfully? Well, if so, let's give thanks to God. Let's not focus on they're not with us. Let's give praise that they're with God. And so as I focused on this sermon, and I looked into my life, and I would say crevices, but probably it's more honest, the major parts of my life, I saw many ways that I continue to need to be molded like Jesus. That it's not about my power, it's about His. It's not about victory and my great successes, it's about life coming through death. It's not about how Great we are, our name, our prestige. It's about humility and serving others. And lastly, it's not about how many people we can get in our circle, but how many people are praising Christ. And as we notice our errors, our faults, our needs for much growth, we can respond in one of two ways. We can beat ourselves up. Oh, I'm a horrible Christian. Oh, I don't do anything right. Or we can realize we were never intended to be perfect in our own strength. God shows us our weaknesses because, as Paul says, when we're weak, then we're strong. As we realize our sins, it drives us back to the cross. It drives us back to needing grace and the wonderful Savior who gives us that grace. It's not about us. It's about Him. And so a beautiful passage reminding us that. And so we'll pray and conclude, and then we'll sing a wonderful hymn, I will sing of my Redeemer. We won't sing of Wichita Falls Baptist Church. We won't sing of how great we are or how great we have everything. We'll sing of our Redeemer and what He's done for us. Let's pray.